The son had none of those flaws. He was, in every way, lightning in a bottle. I'm Abby Nemec, and this is A Time for Horses. Many people have sighed for the good old days and regretted the passing of the horse. But today, when only those who like horses own them, it is a far better time for horses. C.W. Anderson You're listening to a podcast about people and horses. Each episode, I take a look at a true story that connects somehow to horses, horse people, or the horse business. I'll tell you the story, sure, but I'm also going to tell you why I think it's a story worth telling. So, set the cruise control, step onto the treadmill, pick up a pitchfork, or pour another cup of coffee. I've got a story to tell you. Shake it! Break it! Episode 8, Lightning in a Bottle. This is a story about a hugely famous horse, a legendary figure. The part of the story I want to tell you about is the part that's not usually included in the legend. If you're a regular listener of the show, you won't be surprised to learn that I'm going to tell you about the part where you realize how far the story spreads and how many different things are involved. I'm going to add a whole bunch of shades of color to the story that starts out blue and white. Oh, and red. Big red. One of the iconic phrases in the world of wagering is the saying, the toss of a coin. It means the odds are even. 50-50. Hobson's choice. Six of one, half a dozen of the other. Even Stephen. You can't predict the outcome. Now, how do you suppose the loser of the coin toss can turn out to be the winner in the end? In the 1960s, a Virginia racehorse breeder made a deal with a Kentucky breeder that was planned to help them both out by stirring up the gene pool a little. The Kentucky breeder owned some of the best thoroughbred running horses in the country at the time, but they kept their success close to home and, for the most part, bred their stallions to the mares they owned. They didn't sell many of the offspring, either. They owned the best stallions, after all. If they want to enhance their racing stock, a stallion owner might set up a breeding contract with a farm that owns high-quality mares, with the characteristics they're looking for. A contract like this generally plans two breedings, with a coin toss to decide which breeder gets the pick of the offspring. This sort of arrangement isn't unusual. In this particular contract, the Virginia breeder sent two mares to Kentucky in 1968 to be bred to the top sire in the country at the time. They would send two mares in 1969 as well. The deal was such that after the first two foals were born, there would be a coin toss between the two breeders. The winner of the coin toss would have their pick of the foals on the ground. The loser would have their pick of the two foals born the following year. Each breeder gets to choose once, and each breeder ends up with two foals, if all goes to plan. The stallion in question was the great bold ruler, 
who was Horse of the Year in 1957, and Sire of the Year eight times. The mares sent to him in 1968 were Hasty Matilda and Something Royal. These breedings produced one colt, which is what we call a male foal, and one filly, or female. The coin was tossed, and the stallion owner chose the filly, daughter of something royal. She was named the bride. In 1969, something royal was sent back to be bred again to Bold Ruler along with another mare, Cicada. Unfortunately, Cicada did not conceive, leaving only one live foal standing in 1970, which meant that the loser of the coin toss, who had the pick that year, chose the live foal produced by something royal. It was a handsome chestnut colt. And they named him Secretariat. While we're wagering, I'm going to wager that you've probably heard of this horse. He would prove to be one of the most astounding specimens of horse flesh to step on a racetrack, ever. You can debate the merits of other thoroughbreds and racehorses of other breeds who were products of their own time, and whose race records are hampered by the culture and technology of their age. But Secretariat sure stands out. He set records that still stand today, more than 40 years later. Disney Studios made a movie that, with some liberties, tells his story, and he sired 663 named foals in his breeding career. If you want to check him out on YouTube, enter Secretariat in the search box, and you'll get 337,000 results. No joke. Many of those videos have hundreds of thousands of views, and several run into the millions. He was a popular fellow. One of the wonderful parts of the Secretariat legend is the contribution of Penny Chenery, at one time Mrs. Penny Tweedy, who was the owner of the Big Red Horse, and an endearing and charismatic character in this tale. As I was in the last days of researching this episode, I woke one morning to find the following in my newsfeed from the New York Times. Quote, Penny Chenery, owner of the Triple Crown winner Secretariat, dies at 95. Penny Chenery, who took over her father's thoroughbred farm with little knowledge of horse racing and became one of the few prominent women in the sport as the owner and breeder of Secretariat, perhaps the fastest horse who ever raced, died on Saturday at her home in Boulder, Colorado. End quote. We've put a link to the full article in our show notes for this episode at atimeforhorses.com forward slash lightning in a bottle. Now, most people know that Secretariat won American Thoroughbred Racing's Triple Crown in the early 1970s, and most people likely figure that the great horse was retired to stud after he stopped racing. If you've listened to our earlier episodes, you may recall that the big red horse lived to a ripe old age and was euthanized due to consequences of laminitis. I think it's easy to imagine a top racehorse retiring to the breeding shed and producing lots of little gems just like themselves to carry on the legacy. But it doesn't usually work quite like that. The motto of most horse breeders is breed the best to the best and hope for the best. 
Now, Secretariat was legendary for a reason. Yes, he won the Triple Crown. And yes, he was the first horse in 25 years to have done so. But here's the thing. When he won the Kentucky Derby, his split times for the race were shorter at the end of the race than at the beginning. What I mean by that is that he was still accelerating at the end of the mile-and-a-quarter race. His time for that race is still the track record at that distance, 40-plus years later. Secretariat won the Belmont Stakes by 31 lengths and was still drawing away from the rest of the field at the finish. His time for that race is still the world record time for a mile and a half on dirt. As they turned for home, the television announcer, Chick Anderson, called out, Secretariat is widening now. He is moving like a tremendous machine. He was 12 lengths ahead at that point. Secretariat raced only two seasons and won over $1.3 million in that time. He earned five Eclipse Awards, including Horse of the Year, both years of his career. He had 21 starts and crossed the finish line first 17 times. His record shows one fourth place in his first race, then one third and three second place finishes. In one of those losses, he actually finished first, but was penalized with second for interference. For one, he was actually sick with a fever and diarrhea but finished second anyway. And in one, he ran with a tooth abscess. At the beginning of 1973, his second year of racing, Secretariat was syndicated for over six million U.S. dollars, meaning individual investors pooled their funds to buy an ownership stake in his future. One of the conditions of his syndication required that he be retired from racing at the end of that year. And so, his breeding career along with our story, begins. Secretariat was an incredible racehorse. I think we've established that. But he had some interesting characteristics that made that so. He had a tremendous heart. And I don't just mean he had heart, although he did have that. When we talk about a horse who will dig deep when the going gets rough, who will pull hard when they're tired, we call that heart. And he did have that but he literally, physically, had a huge heart. We don't know its weight for sure because it wasn't weighed, but the veterinarian who did the necropsy at the time of his death held the heart in his hands and was stunned by its size. When he later did another necropsy where they did weigh the heart based on having held Secretariat's heart, he estimated it had been 22 pounds. An average horse of his size would have a heart that weighs about nine pounds. It wasn't abnormal. It wasn't defective. It was just massive. And this is something that's been known before. There have been a few thoroughbred horses over time who had an unusually large heart. Eclipse was known to have had an enormous heart, and he is one of the foundation sires of the thoroughbred breed. Man of War, who raced in 1919 and 1920, was known to have had a very large heart. Some people call that the X factor and assume that it is a simple genetic trait passed from generation to generation. But it's pretty clear 
that it's not something that is passed directly from one generation to the next through simple inheritance. If it were, it would be easy to breed for. Of course, it takes more than a large heart to make a racehorse. Another thing about Secretariat is that he had almost perfect confirmation for racing. The word confirmation in equestrian parlance means the way an animal is put together, the way they are shaped, the way they are conformed, the length of the neck, the length of the legs, the ratios of various bones. I talked about this a little in the story about Staff Sergeant Reckless, which you can find at a atatimeforhorses.com forward slash pride of the marines, where I talked about how she was built to travel slowly over many miles. Well, the horse in this story was built to travel very, very fast over fairly short distances, say a mile to a mile and a half. We have modern technology that can analyze pictures of a horse and use digital tools to measure the specific lengths of various bones and joint angles and dimensions of parts of the animal's body. These traits are directly related to starting power, staying power, speed over short or long distance, and efficiency of movement. Basically, if you look at Secretariat with these tools, you will see that he was just about perfectly put together to be a classic distance racehorse. He won the confirmational lottery. The other interesting thing about this horse, and the stories are legendary, people have been telling great stories about this horse since he was a young colt, The other interesting thing is that, yeah, he was built to be a racehorse. He was the perfect size, 16 two hands, the perfect height for this distance of race. He was like the best athlete ever in any sport you can name. Venus Williams, Michael Jordan, Michael Phelps, right? But he was also drop-dead handsome with the eyes and the ears and the swish of his tail. Oh, and Secretariat loved the camera. He would puff himself up when he saw the crowds, pick up his head and tip up his ears. But he was also a nice guy. He was easygoing and totally unflappable. Never worried about a thing. Never went off his feed. Oh no, he ate, you might say, like a racehorse. And he was a bit of a clown in the barn. He used to grab the broom and wave it around. He would steal his brushes from his groom and hide them in his stall. He was just so much fun to be around. Everyone who worked with this horse adored him. And all of these things kind of go together. Any trainer will tell you that a horse with the right attitude kind of learns to play the game. They work hard. They understand what it is that they're trying to accomplish, especially if like a racehorse, they are bred for generations to want to be at the front of the pack. All of that was present in Secretariat, but he had the bonus that he didn't get himself worked up over stuff. He was busy thinking about, how do I go about winning this game? As I said, in his first race, he finished fourth, and he galloped in his first race like any other horse. But after that race, he realized he didn't like losing. He wanted to win. So, after that race, he changed his galloping stride. Now, if you've listened to Episodes 5 and 6, The Story of Edward Mybridge, you've heard me talk a lot about the horse's gates. 
I explained how the rabbit and the dog have a bounding gallop. They have two moments of suspension, one between the push-off of the hind feet and the landing of the forefeet, and then another between the push-off of the forefeet and the landing of the hinds. A normal galloping gait in a horse has only one of these moments of suspension. Hind foot, hind foot, front foot, front foot, flight. Well, our friend Secretariat figured out how to add a moment of suspension in his gait, extending the length of his stride to more than 24 feet from one imprint of a foot to the next imprint of the same foot. He had a reach in the elite class, without question. Now, video analysis techniques have allowed researchers to measure stride length by counting strides against distances and doing the math. We know that reach matters. Elite horses reach 23 to 26 feet per stride, but also that the force the animal places against the ground also matters. This is basically like the torque in your automobile. The push has to match the reach to be efficient. Also, you should know that the horse's respiration is coupled to their galloping stride. It's called respiratory locomotor coupling. This means that the galloping tempo, the frequency of strides, has to be matched to the size of the horse's lungs and heart in order to fuel the muscles with oxygen throughout the whole race. They need straight legs, decent feet, and a good farrier to keep them sound at high speed. Then, keep in mind that, like any athlete in any sport, the elite racehorse has to have a temperament that allows them to tolerate the punishing workouts and jet-setting competitive lifestyle. They have to listen to the jockey and work together to win the race according to the plans of the trainer. And they have to have the cooperation of the owner who's funding the whole thing. The horse also has to have an appetite to tuck into their meals and eat the large amount of food that's needed to fuel the work that they're doing. Plus, they have to want to win. So you can see, the success of a horse like this is not just about any one trait, or even two, or three, or six. This horse comes from generation after generation of speed and stamina, soundness and trainability. And he had some of those once-in-a-while traits that seem to skip a generation or pop up when you aren't quite sure they are really in there. Some horses pass these traits on to their offspring in a predictable way. Other horses are less predictable, leaving us scratching our heads about what we are producing. Seabiscuit beat War Admiral soundly in a match race in 1938. Seabiscuit was Manowar's grandson, War Admiral his son. But it was the loser of the match race who went on to be the more prepotent sire. And War Admiral has contributed quite a bit of Man o' War's genetic material to today's thoroughbred, not Seabiscuit. If greatness is not predicted by careful breeding and conscientious training, then where does it come from? When Secretariat was retired in November of 1973, there was at first some concern about his fertility, so he was bred to three non-thoroughbred mares that fall in order to confirm that they would catch or become pregnant, which they did. His first foal was named First Secretary, 
out of an Appaloosa mare. Secretariat sired a crop of 28 foals that year. Now, as I explained before, thoroughbred racehorses start racing in their two-year-old year. Since most of them are born in the spring, that means it would be a little confusing to track the birth dates in relation to race dates to see who was eligible to race when. So, to simplify the record-keeping during race season, all thoroughbred racehorses are given a common birth date of January 1st. This means that to have horses as close to 12 months as possible on their first birthday, they are bred to foal out as early in the year as they can. The normal gestation period of a horse is 11 months, which means the American breeding season is typically in the very early spring or late winter. Now, for those youngsters who are going to be sold as racing prospects, they will go to the yearling sales in the fall of their first year, which means they are less than a year old at that point and have not reached their first birthday. They then go into a year of training in preparation to start racing when they turn two. You can see then that Secretariat's first breedings were in early 1974. His first foal crop was on the ground in 1975, and his get would have hit the training track in 1976 and run in 77 and 78. By the way, that's what we call the offspring of a stallion, his get. The offspring of a mare are called her produce. So anyway, considering that this was a horse who could outrun any equine that had walked the planet in decades, possibly ever, it's not surprising that the best mares available were brought to him for breeding. Breed the best to the best and hope for the best. Once it was confirmed that he was going to be a sire at all, it was expected that Secretariat's get were going to make quite a splash in the world of racing. And this is where the story starts to get interesting. You see, Secretariat's sire, Bold Ruler, was an outstanding sire of racehorses. Now, he would have had an impressive career all by himself, even without being the sire of the fastest horse in the universe. This horse had incredible speed and courage, although he didn't have the stamina of his most famous son. Interesting, Bold Ruler's contemporaries were pretty amazing as well. Three horses born in 1954, including Bold Ruler, were admitted to the Thoroughbred Racing Hall of Fame. In spite of racing in such high class, Bold Ruler was voted Champion Three-Year-Old and Horse of the Year in 1957, and Champion Sprint Horse in 1958. The really impressive record of Bold Ruler, though, is in his offspring— and this is where we start to peek inside the data set of the thoroughbred breed. People in the racehorse business rival baseball fans for their obsession with statistics, but that's because race records and bloodlines are, in many ways, all we have to go on in the quest to produce fast horses who can stay healthy, sane, and strong enough to survive the grueling career of an elite racehorse. It's unfortunate that many horses who are bred for racing don't succeed, and I hope that in future episodes I can bring you some stories about some of these horses who have found other careers when the racing game doesn't really pan out. It's a big industry breeding racehorses, and there are tracks and races for horses of all ranges of ability, though some of them just don't like racing or don't win even at the small tracks, and some never start. 
We actually had one of those horses in my family for several years. We called her Hottie. She had been trained for racing, but never saw her first start due to a minor stable injury that took her out of training for a year. When her owner passed away, she was sold to a friend of mine, and then later came to my house at the age of nine, where she lived for nine more years and was loved as dearly as any horse has ever been loved. The thoroughbred is a very special breed, and she was a shining example of it. As a matter of fact, one horse that appeared twice in Hottie's pedigree was Bold Ruler. One of his sons, Bold Nesian, was Hottie's maternal grandsire. That means Hottie's mother, her dam, as we say, was the daughter of Bold Nesian. Hottie also had Bold Ruler back a couple of generations on the top side. Let me explain that. When you write out a horse's pedigree, you put their name on the left side of the page. Then above that and to the right, you write the name of their sire, the father. Below the horse's name and also to the right, you write the name of their dam, the mother. One step farther to the right, you do the same thing. Above the sire's name, you put his sire, the paternal grandsire, and below the sire's name, you put the paternal grand dam. Down a row, you put the maternal grandsire, this is on the bottom half of the page, and then down at the bottom, the maternal grandam. In this way, you proceed to the right, generation by generation, such that the line along the top is all the sires of the sires, called the tail male line, and the line along the bottom is all the dams of the dams, called the tail female line. You have one horse on the left of the page, two in the next column, four in the next, eight in the next, and so on. That's what the pedigree looks like. The top side is dad's family, and the bottom side is mom's family. You can imagine that if you look back three, four, or five generations, you might find a horse bred to a somewhat distant cousin. And so some names are going to appear in a pedigree more than once. This pattern is called line breeding and you will see it quite a bit when we breed animals for certain traits. The idea is, if you cross relatives who are similar in certain traits, you're likely to get similar offspring more predictably, because you're drawing from a smaller gene pool. If you cross unrelated animals, called outcrossing, the result is going to be less certain. Might be great, might be mediocre, you can't always say. If you cross very closely related relatives, say, a mare to her uncle, that's called inbreeding, and it's a common approach to planning breedings for performance. The point is, if you're breeding for a reason, Holstein cows for milk production, border collie dogs for herding instinct, or merino sheep for their wool production, you get a more predictable result from line breeding. Outcrossing, or breeding to more distant relatives, adds variety to the genetic makeup of the animal. Of course, in the thoroughbred breed, the relatives are only going to be so distant, because the entire breed itself traces back to just a handful of foundation horses from the 17th century. There were three stallions and a few dozen mares, which gave rise to the entire genetic pool of modern thoroughbreds. So, on the top side of Secretariat's pedigree, the sire side, we have Bold Ruler, who, in addition to his race record, was listed as the leading sire of the year, an astounding eight times, in an unbroken streak from 1963, which was his first year eligible, through 1969. 
and then again in 1973, the year Secretariat won the Triple Crown. He held this title more than any other stallion in the 20th century. Of the 366 named foals that bold ruler sired, 240 of them were winners, and 82 were stakes winners. Stakes horses run in the races that pay the biggest purses, and so the winners earn the highest money for their owners. Even without including secretariat, Bold Ruler had quite a production record. On the bottom side of secretariat's pedigree, as I told you before, was a mare with a wonderful temperament, by the name of Something Royal. Now, because a breeding stallion will sire dozens of foals per year, but the mare can only produce one, Thoroughbred broodmares are very important in bloodlines. Again, because the pedigrees and race results are so carefully tracked, they get a lot of credit for their offspring. Something Royal produced 18 named foals, of which 15 of them actually raced, and 11 were winners. And, of course, she was named Kentucky Broodmare of the Year in 1973. Interestingly enough, though, she had three foals sired by Bold Ruler. Syrian C won over $178,000 at the track, which isn't too shabby, and she was a successful producer. The bride was unplaced in four starts, but also went on to be a successful broodmare. And then there was Secretariat. Now, here is another interesting thing. In horse breeding, and particularly among thoroughbreds, we don't just keep track of sires and dams. We also keep track of the broodmare sires, the maternal grandsire, also called the dam sire. Now, why is that? Why not the sire's sire? Why not the dam's dam? The answer to that question is that nobody really knows. Well, we, we know, but we don't. So let me tell you about something royal's sire, Secretariat's dam sire. Prince Aquilo has had a lasting influence. As a racehorse, he did especially well in longer races. He was what we call a stayer. He finished in the money in 24 of his 33 starts, earning just under $100,000 in 1940s money. After he was retired from racing, he sired 65 stakes winners and led the American sire list in 1957 and 1958. What was more impressive was that he then graduated to reign as the leading broodmare sire a remarkable eight times between 1966 and 1976. It's said that it was through Prince Aquilo that Secretariat got his very large heart, as did Prince Aquilo's daughters, who passed it on to many of their offspring. Through tracing bloodlines carefully back to the origins of the thoroughbred breed, some researchers have made the argument that the gene for a large heart is carried on the X chromosome. This is called a sex-linked genetic trait, and it would be something that can be passed on by a mare to any of her produce, but by a stallion only to his daughters. You see, in females, both of the sex chromosomes are X. Males, on the other hand, have one X and one Y in their pair of sex chromosomes, so when they pass on one of those to their offspring, only sons get the Y and only daughters get the X. If the gene for a large heart is indeed carried on the X chromosome, 
then it would only be passed to the daughters, because the sons get the Y chromosome. Any horse can receive the large heart gene, but a male receives it only from its mother. This is a pretty solid theory, and has been written about quite a bit, so I'll put a couple of links on the topic in the show notes at atimeforhorses.com forward slash lightning in a bottle. Now, let me see if I can explain this next bit in a way that makes sense, since it really took me a long time to make sense of it myself. When I took high school biology, I loved the part about genetics. I loved the talk about dominant alleles and recessive ones, and how a trait could be dominant, recessive, or mixed based on what information an animal or a plant had inherited from its parents. I understood about how Gregor Mendel had looked at smooth peas and wrinkled peas and crossed the two pea plants together and gotten consistent results. Well, as we get deeper into understanding genetics on a molecular level, now we are starting to learn that Mendel was lucky when he chose pea plants to study. It turns out that only a small proportion of the things we get from our parents through genetic material actually fit what we are now calling Mendelian inheritance patterns. With a Mendelian trait, a single gene carries all of the decision-making power for a given trait. In pea plants, smooth or wrinkly peas is a Mendelian trait, conveniently for Gregor Mendel. In humans, blood type and cystic fibrosis are among the traits confirmed to be transmitted this same way. In horses, coat color is expressed this way, although it's pretty certain that there are multiple genes involved that work together to create the many beautiful colors that we see in our many breeds. So, if some things are not inherited through straight Mendelian patterns, then how are they passed on? I think it's easiest for me to share this from the U.S. National Library of Medicine. Quote, People inherit two copies of their genes, one from their mother and one from their father. Usually, both copies of each gene are active or turned on in cells. In some cases, however, only one of the two copies is normally turned on. Which copy is active depends on the parent of origin. Some genes are normally active only when they are inherited from a person's father. Others are active only when inherited from a person's mother. This phenomenon is known as genomic imprinting. In genes that undergo genomic imprinting, the parent of origin is often marked or stamped on the gene during the formation of egg and sperm cells. This stamping process, called methylation, is a chemical reaction that attaches small molecules called methyl groups to certain segments of DNA. These molecules identify which copy of a gene was inherited from the mother and which was inherited from the father. End quote. Now, I'm not saying that the large heart gene, if it is a single gene, is necessarily imprinted. But there has been some research that shows clearly that at least some of the equine genome is made up of imprinted genes. This actually only occurs in mammals and some plants. In humans, about 1% of our genes are imprinted, and those imprinted genes are generally related to growth and development. We don't really know about the horse yet, but they're working on it. 
In any case, basically any imprinted gene that is maternally expressed will only be awake, switched on when it's received from the dam. Anyone that is paternally expressed is only on when it's received from the sire, regardless of the sex of the offspring. The gene itself might be there, but if it's not expressed, then it's basically sleeping until it is passed on again. So let's say my father has, say, something like hairy hobbit toes. My mother doesn't, thank goodness. And in the great coin toss that is inheritance, I get one hairy toe gene from dad and one plain toe gene from mom. If the gene for toe hairiness is maternally expressed, I'm going to have the plain toes because the rule says I get my mother's toes and dad's toe gene is turned off. Lucky me. Then, when I have children, whichever toes they inherit from me will be turned on, regardless of the toe type their father has. If my child inherits the hairy toe gene from me, a 50-50 chance, they will have hairy toes. In this way, a trait, or a group of traits, can skip a generation. They get their hairy toes from their maternal grandfather. So you see... We have at least two things going on here. One is the fact that some traits, possibly one as important as a double-sized heart, might be attached to the sex chromosomes, which would mean they are passed on only from sire to daughter, and from the dam to both sons and daughters. Another possibility is that some traits, likely related to growth and metabolism, might be imprinted so that they only appear when passed on by one or the other sex. To be honest, it's likely some mishmash of the two processes. And of course, you can't discount the idea of breeding the best to the best. No matter what traits are being passed on and how, they have to be in there in the first place. The final thing we have to consider is that breeding thoroughbreds is still about as close to well-controlled as any equine reproduction out there, because the jockey club, the breed registry, requires all breeding to occur through what we call live cover. And any horse that has raced has an identifying lip tattoo for positive identification. The mare and the stallion have to have their identity confirmed and physically mate in order for the offspring to be registered. They don't permit artificial insemination, surrogate pregnancy, nor cloning. This means that we are not messing around with questions of the surrogate influencing the fetus differently during its development. This way, all of the functions of parental imprinting and sex-linked inheritance are working just the way Mother Nature intended. Among Secretariat's first crop of foals was Canadian Bound, who was the first horse to sell for over a million dollars as a yearling, going for 1.5 million U.S. dollars. He had four starts over three years on the track, finishing second once and never winning a single race, and earning $1,050 in his lifetime. He sired 106 foals with no stakes winners. This did not bode well for Secretariat's future at stud, and in the early years, there was quite a bit of speculation that the horse Time magazine dubbed Super Horse would turn out to be a failure as a sire. People tend to do that, you know. They put expectations on a horse that they will reproduce themselves over and over, 
But that really depends a lot on how that whole genetic game of chance plays out, doesn't it? I mean, Secretariat didn't do too badly as a sire. He did ultimately sire more than 50 stakes winners, including General Assembly, who set a track record at Saratoga and the Traverse Stakes that stood for 27 years. You can't shake a stick at that. He sired a little gray filly named Lady's Secret, who ran in 45 races and won 25 of them, including 10 grade one stakes, earning over $3 million. He sired the Canadian champion two-year-old colt, Medaillador. It goes on. The big red horse sired Risen Star, who came third in the 1988 Kentucky Derby, and then bounced back to win the Preakness Stakes and the Belmont Stakes as well. Risen Star showed his father's staying power by finishing the Belmont 14 and three-quarters lengths ahead of the rest of the pack. Secretariat also sired a colt named Tinner's Way, who raced for five years, starting 27 times, and won more than $1.8 million at the track. Hard to say that he didn't pass on his abilities, you know? Even so, it was not a sure thing to breed to this horse, that you'd get offspring just like him. But look at it this way. His dam was pigeon-toed and had offset knees. His father, in spite of his blistering speed, had a bit of a challenge to stay 100% sound while he was racing, in spite of his win record. The son had none of those flaws. He was, in every way, lightning in a bottle. That sort of happy accident that sometimes happens when you breed the best to the best and hope for the best. Secretariat had speed on the top side and stamina on the bottom. His father was one of the top racehorse sires of the century, who passed on his blazing speed. His mother carried her father's massive heart and stellar temperament. Her father was one of the top broodmare sires of the century. And yet, Secretariat had two full siblings who could not touch him. He was one of a kind in every way. It's been said from time to time, that Secretariat was not a productive racehorse sire, although not by his owner, Penny Chenery. Of his 663 foals, about half of them were winners, but he sired only 54 stakes winners, about 8% of his get, compared to more than 20% stakes winners for Bold Ruler. So it takes a year to produce a horse, two more years till it races couple more years till it becomes breeding stock in turn, another couple or three years before those offspring leave their mark. It's a long cycle, but you may not be surprised to learn that as that cycle began to come around, first once, then again, Secretariat's influence on racing around the world would begin to be known. Secretariat sired a mare by the name of Lady Winborne, who had a win and a third, in two starts, but she went on to produce 13 winners out of 15 foals. He sired a mare named Six Crowns, who was a stakes winner herself before producing multiple grade one winner Classic Crown and also Chief's Crown, who won the Breeders' Cup Juvenile and was voted the Eclipse Award for males as a two-year-old. And then he later sired 11 stakes winners of his own with 20 stakes wins. It gets better. 
one of Secretariat's daughters, was Weekend Surprise, who, in 31 starts, finishing in the money 22 times, won over $400,000. Like her father, she had the ability to come from behind in a race, and did her best that way. She was described like this on AmericanClassicPedigrees.com. Quote, she possessed excellent acceleration as a racehorse and did her best running when coming from well back. According to Mary Simon of Thoroughbred Times, she had the heart of a tiger in competition, but those familiar with her as a broodmare described her as easy to handle. End quote. Beyond her own race record, Weekend Surprise produced 14 named foals, with nine of them winners. Among her produce, our summer squall, who is considered the second best of his crop, won the Preakness in 1990 and sired 35 stakes winners from 354 foals. Honor Grades, who was successful on the track and sired 32 stakes winners. Weekend Storm, who produced five stakes winners. Weekend in Seattle, who was a grade one stakes winner and producer. And Tiger Ridge, who sired at least 30 stakes winners. She was chosen Kentucky Broodmare of the Year in 1992, like something royal. Most important of the offspring of Weekend Surprise was a bay colt by the name of A.P. Indy, who has had an impressive influence. Not really surprising, as his sire was Seattle Slough, who was the next Triple Crown winner after Secretariat, and he also descended from Bold Ruler. He is described this way by AmericanClassicPedigrees.com. Quote, A.P. Indy matured into an extremely handsome, correct racehorse with a deep girth and powerful quarters. He was slightly wide in front. At racing speed, he recalled his maternal grandsire secretariat with his low-headed, efficient gait. His one weakness was having rather shelly feet. As a stallion, he developed the dipped top line, typical of the Seattle Slough tribe. He had a white-rimmed left eye that gave him a rather wild appearance. According to trainer Neil Drysdale, A.P. Indy was a very strong-willed horse and a bit of a bully. Nonetheless, he developed an affectionate relationship with his longtime groom, Asa Haley. End quote. From 2001 to 2009, according to the Blood Horse, A.P. Indy was in the top nine of the American General Sire list, leading in 2003 and 2006. From 2011 to 2016, he was in the top five on the American Broodmare Sire list and led the ranking in 2015. Just wait, I'm not done yet. Another one of Secretariat's daughters was a record-setting filly named Terlingua, her race record started off with a four-and-a-half-length win, setting the stakes record. A three-and-a-half-length win, a two-and-a-half-length win against both male and female juveniles, and a nine-length win against a field of fillies. Her three-year-old year was not quite as brilliant, though she still won two stakes that year, and then, as a four-year-old, she set two more stakes records. She wasn't just a racehorse, though. She also had an impressive production record, with six winners out of 11 foals. Three of those had 24 starts each. The list of her produce includes the multiple-graded stakes winner Chapel of Dreams, Tijuana and Provo, who were successful on the track and as sires overseas, 
Wheaton, who was a successful sire of stakes winners and successful sire pioneering. But her lasting influence will be through her second foal, a colt by the name of Stormcat. He was Terlingua's first stakes winner, and he would go on to be one of the most influential sires in recent times, getting both many millionaires and many stakes winners. AmericanClassicPedigrees.com describes Stormcat this way, quote, He was a muscular, powerful, well-built individual with an exceptional hip, but had offset knees that he often passed to his progeny. He was also known for his peppery disposition, though he could be charmed by peppermints. Stormcat led the American General Sire List in 1999 and 2000, and led the American Juvenile Sire List seven times, 1992, 1993, 1995, 1998, 1999, 2002, and 2004, breaking the record of six Juvenile Sire titles set by Bold Ruler. As these honors indicate, he was a great sire of speed and precocity, though he had a fair number of runners that performed well at ages three and up. He gained the reputation of a great sire of sires, and to date has led the American broodmare sire list three times, 2012 to 2014, as well as being runner-up on that list in 2016 and third in 2010, 2011, and 2015. He was 6th in 2005, 7th in 2009, and 8th in 2006, 2007, and 2008. As of August 21st, 2015, Jockey Club Records credit Stormcat with having sired 811 winners and 177 stakes winners from 1,452 named foals. He was often faulted for passing his offset knees and tough disposition to his progeny, but he also passed on his good body and strong hip, as well as a powerful competitive instinct. End quote. To add a few little tidbits about this horse, Stormcat sired 91 yearlings selling for a million dollars or more. That's a record, by the way. His initial stud fee was 20000 and it eventually reached a half million U.S. dollars. One of his most successful get was Tiger Ridge. Yep, you've heard that name before. Tiger Ridge was also the son of Weekend Surprise, so pretty tightly inbred to Secretariat. And Tiger Ridge sired 30 stakes winners. That's why racehorses are bred so tightly. It often works. Stormcat continued siring foals after his retirement, since he could be bred via artificial insemination to quarter horse mares. That practice is permitted by the quarter horse breed registry, but not by the jockey club, which registers thoroughbreds. Stormcat was even cloned. Two clones were produced. One, sadly, died in a paddock accident, but the other will be used for breeding. The get won't be eligible to race, though since the clone was not produced by live cover. And so it was that a horse you knew as a great racehorse, who you may have heard was a disappointment in the breeding shed, has left a long-tail legacy in the breed. He came to his owner, the remarkable Penny Chenery, through a toss of a coin. Then, through the random game of chance that is horse breeding and the fascinating half-art, half-science that is horse training— he showed us movie star good looks 
blazing speed, and seemingly limitless stamina. And then, through a world of thrilled and passionate horse fans, he was crowned Super Horse. And now, as we look back some 45 years after Secretariat first galloped into our hearts, even those of us in the stands and in front of our video screens can be grateful we have something to remember him by. Not sure what I mean? You may also have heard of another classy horse known as American Pharaoh. He happens to be descended from our hero, great-grandson of Stormcat, and so through Secretariat's daughter Terlingua, but that's not the half of it. Pharaoh also won all three races in America's Thoroughbred Racing Triple Crown in 2015, and, like his famous ancestor, he did so breaking a 25-year drought. When Pharaoh won the Kentucky Derby, the four horses right behind him were also Secretariat descendants. When he won the Preakness Stakes, all eight of the horses in the race were also Secretariat descendants. And four of the seven horses that Pharaoh beat in the Belmont Stakes had Secretariat in their pedigrees. And here's one other little story. Remember how I told you about the 1973 Triple Crown? Well, it's entirely possible that if one horse in the field had not been running against Secretariat, a horse by the name of Sham, if Sham had not been running against Secretariat, he may well have won the Triple Crown that year. He finished second in the Derby and second in the Preakness, and then in the Belmont Stakes, after hanging on behind the indomitable Big Red until the midpoint of the race, he dropped back to finish in last place. Sham was retired the next month, after it was found he had a bone fracture. That was repaired, and he went on to stand at stud. Among his get? Three stakes winners. Are we having fun yet? Jazeera and Safe Play. She became the dam of stakes winner defensive play. When Sham died, the necropsy revealed that his heart weighed 18 pounds, twice the size of a normal heart, yet still smaller than Secretariat's. In any other year, it seems, Sham would have had all the accolades. Sham's broodmare sire? Prince Aquila. Thanks for listening to our story about the amazing horse whose friends called him Big Red. I hope you've enjoyed it. I'll be back in a few weeks with the last story of our first year. I'm pretty excited about this show. I told my friends when I started the podcast that I was going to do this for a year, and if I was still having fun doing it at the end of the year, I'd keep going. Well, I'm glad to say I am still having fun, and based on the statistics I get from our media host, Blueberry, it seems as though there are a few folks out there who are enjoying it, too. We have listeners around the world and across the United States, and even during the last few months where life has challenged my ability to keep up with the research I need to do if I'm going to tell this sort of story the way I like to, you guys still seem to be sharing the show around, and our audience continues to grow. Next time, I'm going to include a season wrap-up at the end of the episode and I plan to give credit to the folks who have helped to get us through to the end of the year, including you. Here's what I'm going to do. 
I'm going to read out all of our listener reviews, emails, and voicemails. Right now, that's a sort of a short list. But I am ever so grateful to the few folks who have spent the couple of minutes it takes to pop in through the app they're using to listen, or who have clicked in through the website and shared a little love for our show out there in the directories. If you want me to read your review, please do that. It's super easy. You can just tap through your app. Pretty much all of the major podcatchers and directories allow you to navigate into the directory and give us your thoughts in a review. We only have a few reviews, so I thought how I'd absolutely love it if instead of writing what you like about the show, you guys started a trend where your review just tells us where you are when you are listening to our show. That's all. You don't need to say any kind of great things about the show itself, unless you want to. Just where you listen. Our year-ending story will be coming up in a few weeks, and I can't wait to tell you this one. I've told you before that I come from a long line of horse folk, right? Well, next time, I'm planning to bring you a different sort of story, taken from the autobiography of one of the more dubious characters in my family tree. After all, when you find out you're related to someone infamous, it's just as good if they are only a distant Galatian. In the meantime, please reach out and help us spread the word about the show by hopping over to your podcast directory and telling us where you listen, or else visiting atimeforhorses.com forward slash contact. And as always, you know the thing that makes a good podcast great, more listeners. So if you don't tell us, tell someone else, the old-fashioned way, that you are enjoying our show. That's how we continue to grow, after all. And thanks for that. If you're listening to our show on the web, you may already know that our website is atimeforhorses.com, and you'll find the notes for this episode at atimeforhorses.com forward slash lightning in a bottle. If you're new to the concept of listening to a podcast, I'm really glad to hear it. You know, you can subscribe to the show for free and never miss an episode. Just go to atimeforhorses.com forward slash subscribe for links to the various places where you can find us. And thanks for giving me your ear space. I'll see you next time. <laughs>